time stuff that I wish I had. The big time stuff that'll make you mad. The big time stuff. I like the big time stuff. I like the big time stuff that I never had. Hey, thanks for joining us for another episode of Market Meditations. Um, the conversation you're about to hear is a conversation where Chris and I uh, go a lot of different places and have a lot of different thoughts about things from uh, SPACs, which are taking a lot of hold these days in terms of alternatives to IPOs or direct listings. Uh, we talk about the market, of course, and we talk about venture capital. And today's episode was particularly fun because we had an intermixing of um, uh conversation about private markets, intangible assets, and uh, public markets and how they all go together. You're in for a treat uh, in terms of the conversation you're about to hear. Thanks again for joining us. Wait, so what, have you must be reading that a lot of um, funds are com- converting to RIA, and I just started recording, by the way, into registered investment advisors, like um, mm-hmm. including like Andreessen Horowitz. And I guess some of it's about the regulation for their ability to invest in blockchain or blockchain companies. Um, and so now they're willing to pay the extra fee, right? It's, it's a lot more expensive to be an RIA uh, than it is a venture capital fund uh, by cost structure. Yeah, yeah. right, um, right, right. I, and I, so you're reading about that. Do you, I guess you think that proliferation will continue and maybe all of the big funds will be RIAs at some point? Gosh, I don't know how uh, widespread it will become. Um, you know, sometimes you see these um, things happen and they seem to have weight, but they don't carry very far. Like the trend of taking pipeline in the midstream area of, of um, the energy space from master limited partnership to corporations like Kinder Morgan did. And everyone said, oh, that's the biggest pipeline and everyone will follow. And really it was just a trickle. <laughs> but it seems like a, a better structure than a, a master partnership to have a regular publicly traded corporation. Um, and it made it much easier for Kinder Morgan to lower their cost of capital and borrowing. But again, sometimes these things have legs and sometimes they don't. I'm, I can't really tell yet. Um, we'll see what happens. But Andreessen Horowitz is kind of like Kinder Morgan in that sense that they're a big player in the VC Except space. Except that Andreessen doesn't make money, right? It's also kind of strange to me, too. But uh, yet, you know, year after year, institutions want to write cap, write checks to them. Um, it, uh, are they unique in that way, to your knowledge? I mean, so like they're not the only VC firm to lose money. Yeah, m- m- maybe. But like, if you were an LP and say, you know, I'll say Kleiner because they're, you know, their their best years are, I think, behind them. Um, maybe mm-hmm. they can resurrect, and that'd be phenomenal if they did, but. Mm-hmm. If you're an LP and Kleiner, you, you killed it on so many different investments in the past. It's kind of okay, right? Like you, you did more than 20x if you were in them in the last 20 years. So it's okay if they're mm-hmm. going a little slower because they still have a phenomenal reputation and they still have a real chance uh, of killing it. Now, when I see um, Andreessen kill it, I, I, they're still not making money. So, <laughs> like, I don't know how to how to put those two things together in my mind. And you know, they're eating more of the world, as as Mark Andreessen likes to talk about. Software is eating the world. Well, Andreessen or Horowitz is trying to eat more of the investment world, and they hired a pretty Im- impressive biologist out of Stanford who who really knew how to look at um, life science deals. Um, 
so they're they're kind of moving more into everything, but I don't really know what it does other than you know generate cash flow for the partners in the end. <laughs> well, right, yeah, right. Maybe that's all that. It, maybe it's not more than that, right? You keep boosting your AUM and getting some sort of management override on that. I guess I, I guess I'm wired to think that like if you're going to do something, it really has to have a return focus. So these things are strange for me to watch, right? Um, and everybody talks about uh, a fair amount of excitement. And a good friend of ours, uh, yours and mine, was telling me that. You know, if you're an institutional investor, you could get fired for investing in a small fund, but you could never get fired for investing in Tiffany's because um, Tiffany's mm-hmm. is a, a gold standard, right? It doesn't matter whether whether Tiffany's performs or not. And, you know, Andreessen being maybe the one that's there. Yeah, yeah, this is true. Maybe they're counting on that institutional uh, mandate, right, that they can continue to raise money. That's what SoftBank did. Look how much capital they've chewed up and spit out or regurgitated. Yeah, like, but that was a not, not intelligent decision by, you know, a prince in Saudi Arabia, right? A lot of that. Half of it. A lot of it. Half of a it. Lot of it. One meeting, mm-hmm. $50 billion or $40 billion, whatever, crazy meeting. Yeah, 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 with a crazy Mayoshi Son and uh, crazy Adam Newman. It's a bunch of crazies. Have <laughs> I got a gift for you? Yeah, it's and, and strange to read about the... Yeah. Um, the unwinding constantly still of we work. Um, oh gosh, yeah. I was just talking to a client of mine who's in a we work building, and you know, I think uh, almost all of their compatriots are, um, you know, they're on a rent strike for sure. And he's asking the question. You know, I, I've read that it's over sixty percent of their um, um, lessees who are engaged in this sort of not paying rent can they can we work really come out of this can they sue everybody all of their tenants um wait they're, they're yeah. on a rent strike meaning they've just refused to pay because the company can't afford to fight them so yeah they're, they're helping lead to the downfall even quicker right <laughs> right right well and and because they they feel like they haven't been negotiated with in good faith and of course because of covid so if you're able to get a deferment on your mortgage, commercial mortgage, then they should get a deferment on their rent. But the structure of that was, you know, that, of course, Adam Newman was buying buildings and then leasing them back to the Wee Company, just like he um, uh, copyrighted the name Wee Incorporated and leased that <laughs> name to the company. He was just generating cash flow for himself. You think Andreessen Horowitz was bad? Good Lord, Adam Newman was really taking advantage of. I I don't um, know that it's very far off. Like I've I've heard different people yeah. have done that. Amazon and Microsoft, you know, living in Seattle. But uh, oh yeah, yeah. Well, I mean, I don't think uh, Newman was any kind of unique thinker. I think he was <laughs> in that milieu, right? It's just part of the collective consciousness right now, which is a sad statement because everyone has become sort of selfish and greedy. And, you know, you, you look at that behavior and um, it's definitely not like you and I, Neil, think business is there to solve problems. Um, that's the, the ultimate goal. And there's a, a higher reason profit should be the measure of value or a measure of value um, that the marketplace puts on the product or service you're offering. Um, but 
in a lot of cases, it's just uh, go for the appearance. I mean, we work and, you know, we talked about pizza arbitrage and DoorDash. I mean, Shopify, many of these companies, which um, are putatively, uh, at least on the outside, appear successful, have just been growing their revenue, even resorting to trickery and malfeasance to show a growth in revenue. And I don't want to impugn Shopify, but I mean, by them, their customer churn is just horrendous. So they're, you know, basically spending a dollar <laughs> to buy subscriptions and buy merchants um, at the low end. And those new merchants using their software out of the box don't last. So you get a, you know, few months or a year of revenue and then you've got a you've got this high churn but then you look at shopify and it's 60 times sales it's like oh my god what's going on there and don't the, even start the, on tesla, the tesla effect, <laughs> tesla effect. Right. did you read did, did you watch the the demo for Neuralink this this last week i did yeah, yeah you watched it yeah well, I, I watched it not in real time but yeah so for, for those folks who don't know, Elon Musk essentially said that, hey, listen, I, you know, I started yet another company and it's a brain implant, uh, a brain computer interface company. And, um, you know, he's raised a bunch of money for it. And I think a lot of the way, by the way, that, you know, he helps Tesla's uh, stock is just by looking like the smartest guy alive. And I think Neuralink is just one more um, stab at that uh, claim. And so he got on there. He's, Are you saying it's one more P.T. Barnum-esque? <laughs> I, it's just one chapter in his, in his playbook or one play in his playbook, yeah. right? Uh, there's a lot of them. Yeah. And essentially he, he went and showed that he could look at um, the readout of a pig um, who was on a uh, treadmill. <laughs> and like the data wasn't like valuable, didn't really give insight into what the pig was thinking. Um, but he was able to show that the the pig had, you know, essentially ECG readout stuff that is available in every hospital. Um, and he was right. very without invasive implants, without invasive <laughs> implants, and actually right. very cheap these days. Uh, and like my Muse meditation headband, you know, it's, I think it's a hundred dollar headband you can buy. Mm -hmm. You know, Elon Musk mm -hmm. spent like. $40 million to do the same thing that, you know, my, my $100 ad band can do. Um, yeah. yeah. Were, were, you, were you at all surprised? You're just rolling your eyes? What is it you think when you see these, these strange I occurrences? Was, well, I, I'm kind of used to Elon's antics. And I, <laughs> right? I've been watching this uh, whole drama really unfold for a long, long time. Um, it's really fascinating, and it keeps working. So I can't, I guess, blame the guy. You know, he's had so many reveals, you know, that uh, are questionable. <laughs> and um, so many announcements of products that are yet to come. Um, I think you just learned a lot from White Combinator living in Silicon Valley. Let's just do a demo day. A demo day will solve yeah. all problems. Let's raise more money. <laughs> well, and, and he's got, you know... He's got people who are copying him. You know, first come the innovators, then the imitators, and then the swarming incompetence. And sometimes <laughs> the innovators are innovating something that doesn't need to be innovated upon. It's uh, this sort of um, performance art uh, that Elon Musk is good at in most cases. But this uh, recent reveal for Neuralink reminded me of his 
Tesla pickup truck, right? When he threw the brick. <laughs> oh shit! That was supposed to happened. Be. Yeah, exactly. The brick was supposed to bounce back at me, but instead it crashed right through this. No, I was shocked by my my friend telling me a bunch of his friends at Amazon ordered this truck, and I was like, "Wow, this is the ugliest vehicle I've ever seen." And he said they agreed, but it was a it was a Tesla, and I was like, "Wait." that should mean something like we should give up our, our desire to have good aesthetics. It's going to be built in a tent <laughs> in Fremont in the dusty desert. Right. It's, uh, and it should get two yeah. or three VIN numbers when it's all done. Right. <laughs> and because they put a deposit down, he's going to record it as a completed sale. So don't worry about the accounting for that and the profit that he's going to show, even if it's never delivered. Anyway, there's a whole. He he, he should hope he never runs into another Preet Bara, huh? Like he's screwed. He runs into the wrong, <laughs> wrong district oh, attorney, oh, wrong prosecutor. Yeah. Well, it's uh, his day. His day is coming. I mean, we've been pretty lenient, you know. I I think you look at the 1920s as a prologue, maybe, um, and you see these kinds of things. We've talked about, you know, the Match King, Ivar Kruger, the great Swedish um, charlatan who actually ran United Match, and it was a growing concern. He was consolidating and rolling up all of these national match companies. But ultimately, the accounting was fraudulent, and he had all these offshore entities to hide the liabilities. Um, and people believed in that stock, above all, even after the 1929 October crash, the, the shares of United Match buckled but did not collapse and recovered fully and then went on to new highs until Ivar Kruger was found dead in Sweden in his mansion of an apparent suicide. Even he couldn't wow, hold it together. Wow, wow, wow. Let's well e e Elon sold all his houses, so right. <laughs> you'll have to find him in a homeless shelter maybe somewhere. <laughs> he doesn't seem like uh I don't know. We, we I don't know if he'll 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 meet the same kind of self uh, determined end. He seems a little more sociopathic in certain ways, self-aggrandizing. <laughs> Certainly. Then I didn't listen to Ivar Kruger and how he was able to, uh, with his charisma, convince all these investors um, what was other than the truth. But Elon certainly has that talent too. So we'll see. So you must be reading about this uh, conversation um, of Bill Ackman's SPAC reaching out to Airbnb this week as well. Yeah. Well, what will SPAC, what will SPACman buy? <laughs> it's been a big question on the, um, you know, financial threads and in the, in the financial press. Um, he's got the SPAC. He's got the recognition and the name plate to attract capital. Um, and I guess he's really searching for a, a suitable candidate. Airbnb's beaten up. Um, maybe he thinks he can get a good deal. And I don't know how good a deal he can get. They just took a bunch of cash from, uh, was it like Vista Private Equity? Um, uh -huh. Gave them and Expedia a bunch of money, you know, right, right as the pandemic was hitting. Yeah. How well, Vista's a wash in cash too, right? And Vista's got to find a home for that cash. Oh, uh, did they do again. a SPAC as well? Did I miss this? No, they didn't do a SPAC, but Vista has, you know, been so successful that they right. very easily... Um, raise money. So, um, yeah, I mean, this is the perennial challenge in our business, Neil. <laughs> After a spate of great success, the money comes in the door, but 
then what do you do? <laughs> Sometimes the success is not replicable. You can't just repeat it. You can't buy the same companies that already have gone up, right? You've got to find new green field for investment. And uh, after a success, prices are already high. So it already is a bit ameliorative of future returns. So anyway. Wait, so this, just, uh, this kind of reminds, you know, you and I were talking a little bit about this the other day, but we were talking a little about, you know, the rise of SPACs, right? What is it? 50 billion and 40 billion and 55 companies and, you know, Billy Bean, um, the coach from Moneyball or the manager from mm-hmm. Moneyball, <laughs> Oakland Athletics, raises mm-hmm. 2 billion to go buy European soccer teams. Um, I've watched mm-hmm. baseball and soccer. You know, I guess they're both sports, but not quite mm-hmm. the same thing. Um, uh, are we going to see, you know, I, I hate to, to, to play a weird prediction game with you about it, but do you think we're going to see a lot more of this? Or do you think this is just a small phase, uh, a norm, uh, normalizing of a, a vehicle that's been around for a while? Um, or, or is everybody just wanting to be too much like um, Chumath Palapatia and and uh, <laughs> buying a Virgin yeah, Galactic? thank you for saying Chumath's name right, because I always stumble over the... <laughs> I'm Indian. It's supposed to be easier for me. Yes, yes, yes. Thank you. <laughs> but yeah, Chumath, you know, he was early. He kind of predicted the rise of SPACs, um, special purpose acquisition companies, as a kind of counterpoint to the poorly functioning, often poorly functioning IPO market. I think if if initial public offerings um, reform themselves in certain ways, then maybe SPACs will become um, less desirable. I think there's a balance. There's probably room for both. I was reading but, this analysis, uh, though, but like even the direct liftings. So... Uh, for folks who aren't paying as much attention to this market as we are, yeah. this is, you know, essentially when you've got a private company that wants to go public, whether you have Uber or whether you have Google uh, or whatever company it is, it's now mature. It's ready to go public. It's ready to, to trade every day. There's actually supposedly predictable cash flow. Um, which which uh, way is the best way to take it public? Is it through uh, potentially a SPAC uh, or somebody buying you through a SPAC? Is it through... Um, a direct listing, which means you don't go do a massive roadshow and supposedly fees are supposed to be cheaper, or is it through an initial public offering, which we've known really mostly for the last 50 or 60 years? Um, I was reading this analysis, though, that direct listings and IPOs are about the same price in the end, even though people aren't realizing that. Yeah, um, that's probably true. But uh, the SPAC is certainly easier, and the you know the way I think about it too is when you're in an initial public offering and you contract with uh, an investment bank, the investment banks going around to their big investors and trying you know uh, best efforts underwriting or uh, whatever they're promising, they're talking to their biggest investors and saying, hey, do you want a piece of this deal? And they're really working for their investors, not for your company, right? And even in the vetting and finally coming up with a price, they're coming up with a price that is um, palatable to their investor base. 
not necessarily reflective of what the company's real financial value or impact will be. Well, and Facebook being a mispriced IPO as an example, right? It went up as an example. It went right. up fifty percent so, over a hundred percent rather overnight, right? Right. And so when you've got a SPAC special purpose acquisition company, the SPAC certainly is working for you, your partners, right? <laughs> the SPAC your 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 company and the SPAC are indeed one and the same. And so whoever's managing it, if it's Bill Ackman, uh, et cetera, it's really, they're certainly on your side in trying to drum up the best possible valuation for your company. You're right, from a cost of capital standpoint, it may not vary that much. But there is a sort of difference of agency, which I think is important. And as a company founder, it might allow you to sleep better at night, kind of knowing that you don't have that built-in sort of conflict of visions or interest. Um, and then, too, you can look at the success of, like, Nikola. We were talking about the reveal from Elon Musk. Gosh, Nikola learned, I mean, they don't even have a product. They're supposed to be building electric trucks, right? And their reveal was a, a computer-aided design of a drivetrain. <laughs> they didn't even have a physical product. But uh, that came public through a SPAC, and the stock went through the roof. It's, of course, settled back. There is no product. There are no revenues. This definitely was uh, one of those conundrums that bothers the ethics of us in the marketplace. But they did it. They came public through a SPAC, and the share price traded way, way up on nothing but air. And uh, it's like thirty-six bucks uh, a share, or something crazy. A PowerPoint, <laughs> yeah, reveal, yeah. But um, so I think that kind of wet the appetite of a lot of uh, companies in their even pre-revenue stage, if you can imagine it, finding a path to going public, um, because you can't, you could never take a Nicola, for example, on a roadshow. My God, <laughs> you couldn't even price that thing in an IPO. There's nothing. There's nothing there. Oh, I but, get uh, I get Airbnb, right? Like there's revenue. Oh, I've used yeah. it. You've used it. I think every listener has probably used it or thought about it now. Um, mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. are, And they clearly have a business model that seems to offer a path to profitability. It definitely seems sound. And you can see the revenue growth that's exceeding the growth in costs. And, and so at some point you feel like they will turn the corner. Um, cannibalizing all the hotels in the meantime. <laughs> well, right, right, right. Well, we'll, secondary and tertiary effects we'll think about later. Right? Probably not the best process. So, do you still. think you do think we're going to see a lot more specs? Then you think this is a, a a way of being that is here to stay for the next number of years? Yeah, there are a number of potential mitigating factors, like a you know a market correction being chief among them. Or, um, but don't companies still go public during a major market correction? Yeah, yeah, but uh, the IPO process might, I don't know, be preferable to um, people buying an unknown uh, empty shell company um, that promises, like Ackman's, that we're going to find a company Why? of great... Why? I, I think the, the, the great thing about being an investor in even an Ackman SPAC is if you don't agree with what he's buying, you just get your money back. You're out. Can you get your money back? Yeah, that's the whole thing about a SPAC. You, SPAC. you can get a big piece of it back, yeah. I think like over 90% of it. Maybe it's mm -hmm. even 100%.
What we will do is we'll have a spec expert on one of our <laughs> podcasts coming yeah, up so we can learn about these things. Podcasts. Yeah, yeah, yeah. See, folks, there's a lot we are still learning ourselves. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah. Um, talk to us. About, I guess we're, we've talked a bunch about we've, we've flirted with the, uh, the public markets here. Um, mm -hmm. Talk to us about your observations over the last week and, you know, what it is you're thinking about in terms of how the market's going, you know, what, what is it you're most concerned about this week? Um, even if it's the same thing as last week or the week before, but we haven't really gotten a good <laughs> update. <laughs> <laughs> or, or, or even when you studied, you know, the great depression, um, I, mm -hmm. you know, I, I, you know, living in, in, in Bellevue and I imagine like a lot of your clients living in LA or maybe some of them um, living in New Orleans. Um, it seems to me like things aren't changing, even though they're changing. Hmm. So, like, it's hard to understand fully that the market is, um, the, the market is still going well, the economy is not doing well, and uh, there's this race for the cure going on at the same time. <laughs> Talk to us about how it is you're thinking about the mark, market today. Yeah. September well, 3rd, by the way. <laughs> market's <September> closed. <laughs> yeah, market's closed and took a, took a bit of a hit today. Um, which is certainly long overdue. I feel, Neil, like I'm back in the kind of late 1999, early 2000 phase where the market, at least the index averages, have become, become unmoored from the underlying economic reality. And again, I sound like a broken record, so broken record alert. <laughs> it's really, it's not different except that eventually, you know, Newtonian physics and gravity do play a part and that this might be the beginning of, of something larger. Um, you know, usually um, we call the third quarter the confessional quarter because companies that don't meet their numbers are always promising. We'll make it up at the year end. The last two quarters are our strongest quarters. We're going to, you know, yes, we're behind our projected earnings, but we're going to make it up. And by the third quarter, really, you've got only one quarter left to do it. You're either going to make it or not make it. And most companies then confess, oh, yes, <laughs> earnings will fall short of expectations or revenues will fall short or whatever. Um, and so generally, just because time's running out on the clock, you see you know, more market corrections that occur in the third and fourth quarters of the calendar year. Um, they're more frequent. Um, Maybe this is the beginning of that kind of idea that, you know, at some point economic reality comes in um, and people sober up a little bit. But also remember, Neil, I mean, this is a market that's largely driven by algorithmic trading. So um, I don't know if the news cycle <clears throat> isn't positive. <laughs> then the S&P futures and the NASDAQ futures and the Dow Jones futures um, don't trade appropriately. I mean, again, it's a way of saying that we have, at least from the index uh, standpoint, a very heavily manipulated outcome. Um, Sorry, I had a helicopter overhead. <laughs> Sound like you're at an airport. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's kind of weird yeah. to hear those things. I don't hear them well, over I'm, my my house anymore. <laughs> it's fascinating. I'm I'm near the foothills um, in 
Pasadena, as you know, and uh, very often they're hikers or people who get lost or fall off the hill or <laughs> and they send the rescue helicopters. So that's what that one seems like. I hope everyone's okay in the mountains. <laughs> it could be a no premonition about what's going on in the markets and how the Fed's yeah, going to come in soon. Yeah. <laughs> um, but yeah, we've 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 seen, as I mentioned, you know, the the certainly the most popular corner of the market being the technology sector. And it does feel like we've come full cycle, Neil. You know, back in 1980, um, at the outset of this bull market, which has gone, you know, now 40 years, it's pretty, pretty remarkable. Um, the largest sector of the S&P 500 index was the energy sector. Coming out of the 1970s and into 1980, the commodities markets, precious metals markets, basically hard assets and oil and energy and commodities, even pork bellies and things like that were the place most investors focused on. That was where, under an inflationary regime, um, the returns were to be had. And of course, you had some growth in Japan and some more emerging type markets that were uh, South Korea, Taiwan, that were coming into um, further industrialization and maturity. But um, really, Exxon was the largest company uh, in the S&P um, index. Energy was the largest sector. And um, just, of course, last week, the Dow Jones Industrial Average Arbiters kicked out ExxonMobil and replaced it with Salesforce.com. <laughs> wow. So we've got, uh, yeah, a software-as-a-service SaaS company that uh, is supposed to be more representative of the global economy or the, the U.S. economy on a broad basis. Um, and now the only energy component in the Dow, at least, is Chevron that remains. Um, the energy component of the S&P 500 index is below 2.8%. It's shrunken mightily. I mean, Apple alone, I think, is around 4.8% of the S&P index. <laughs> That's larger than the entire energy sector. And Technology is about 30% of the S&P index today. So we went from energy and basically a kind of um, uh, commodity-based investing as the largest sector um, by capitalization in the S&P index 40 years ago to now where it's one of the smallest and is smaller than just one technology giant. And now the technology sector is almost a third of the index. The last time that the technology sector was this represented in the S&P was 2000, just before it uh, deflated. Um, so it does seem like we've come all the way back, full cycle. I mean, you know, there is um, an argument that we're less reliant on hydrocarbons and energy and that focus is changing. But still, it's a huge component of the uh, overall economy. And the growth in places like India and other emerging markets, Vietnam, Indonesia, Malaysia, um, is now responsible for over 65% of the oil demand. Um, so from, so. from my perspective, I think about some of these things as tangible versus intangible assets. And mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. because I think about IP, right? And intangible assets have been on the rise more or less. You know, there's had some, some small downs since like the late 80s, 88, 89 in value. Do, do, 
when you look at the market, obviously I know you like, you know, um, some commodities and, and precious metals and things, but do you think when you're staring at it that uh, intangible assets can keep their value over the next decade? Like, it seems to me tangible assets should always be worth more, right? Just because, um, though I, you know, invest heavily in IP, right? So <laughs> I say that, but those things are kind of contradictory. Um, but you know, I, I wouldn't, I wouldn't not buy a house, right? I wouldn't, I wouldn't rather buy, you know, rights to a book over, you know, a place to live. And, and that's how I kind of think about that. And I, you know, I like the hedge of gold, but when you're, you're, you're constantly staring at this, mm -hmm. do you think intangible assets will crash or will they continue to rise kind of throughout the rest of your life? Or is it not even coming to your to your your thought process about this? Are you just thinking about? Oh no no! I think about this a lot. I think you know, um, of course, uh, when I was a young investor um, and really didn't have a kind of grounding um, philosophically in how to invest, and I discovered value investing, and you know, I <laughs> thought, ah, here's uh, at least a way to think about investing, a structure to invest that makes complete logical sense. Um, and I devoured everything I could read on, you know, value investing from Ben Graham's books to Buffett and Buffett's letters. And um, Buffett, of course, was tremendously instructional in this. And many people think of him as, of course, the foremost exponent of Ben Graham's value investment method and teaching. But of course, Buffett, like many value investors who are successful, from Bill Nygren of Oakmark Funds to uh, Tom Gaynor at Markwell, um, have evolved. Um, and I really think when I read Buffett's letters, the companies he was most successful in investing in um, really generate a tremendous amount of cash flow on a small asset base, right? So you have a a broadcasting company like ABC, Cap Cities, or something, or uh, which eventually became Disney. Um, that is similar in a sense to you know this asset light idea of IP, right? <laughs> um, even intangible in its truest sense, but that can generate uh, cash flow because it in in essence has value. Um, and I think that that. Um, has been certainly fully embraced in the financial markets, even to the point of hotel companies like Marriott going asset light, right? Sale and lease back of properties or just having management agreements. And so um, this co conceptually has taken us so far, I think even mentally, it seems like we have banished, um, like there's, there's no more uh, um, that the world is infinite, right? That cash flows can be infinite on no assets and that we've sort of um, gotten rid of this idea of scarcity, I guess is the best way I'd phrase it. And I think that's the, the cold, hard awakening we're going to face. Um, one of the reasons I'm... Um, um, excited and interested now in investing in the commodity space is because it runs counter to that. It runs counter to 
both of those ideas. I mean, these are asset-heavy companies. <laughs> they um, are in uh, often difficult industries and have high overhead costs and operating liabilities. It's not really uh, ideal. I mean, if I were a young investor and you were going to show me, here are several business models you could choose from. I think retail <laughs> and uh, some commodities investing would be the last uh, ones you choose just from all the risks you have. But I also think that what we've been glossing over for the last couple of decades as we've grown in technology and in this kind of asset light um, and intellectual property model of cash flow thinking is that um, we aren't replacing these assets, um, these commodities, and um, there is scarcity, and we're really just not looking at it. We haven't been replacing the oil um, reserves that we've consumed anywhere near close to replacing those reserves. And so we have an oil crisis, an energy crisis that's right before us. It's baked into the cake. Um, copper, gold, you look at it now. When I first looked at the mining markets, for example, no one would touch an ore body that was less than two grams per ton in terms of gold mining, for example. And now, you know, if you can get 0.8 or 0.75 grams per ton, it's considered uh, a worthwhile mining site. Uh, and I think that's just a sign that most of the low-hanging fruit has already been picked and that um, the price for the commodities themselves has to rise because the energy required to extract them uh, and the resources required to extract them keep going up. I mean, we've got to go deeper and deeper under the ocean to find oil, which makes also substitutes more valuable um, and viable. But ultimately, um, you know, in the U.S., over 64% of our energy grid is powered by natural gas. And now, because the operating oil rigs in the U.S. are down to, I think I read last, um, this was at the end of July, there are only 175 operating rigs in the U.S. This is the lowest number, I think, on record since the early 70s. Um, our production is going to dramatically decline. Globally, I read that there are only 800 or so operating oil rigs. Again, the lowest number since the 1960s. And um, so we're, we're just not um, producing enough to meet the demand. And right now, of course, demand is on hold due to COVID. But at some point, I guess, we should be optimistic we'll get through this and that demand will uh, pick back up. And because in the energy space, at least, most of the demand is coming from emerging markets where the growth really is, um, India, again, being one big part of that, um, I think we'll definitely see a bottleneck um, where we just don't have the supply to meet the demand and a scramble will ensue. So you think the so, price will go up substantially at some point on some of these commodities yeah. as a result? Yeah. And I think you see it with copper, um, even if we go to electric vehicles and um, in mass, you still need more copper. It used to be just associated with construction and the growth in an underlying economy. Wait, so, but now I think. So go uh, back to my original question, you know, mm -hmm. asking a little bit about, you know, the debate about um, tangible versus intangible assets. Everything you're talking about makes a great argument for why tangible assets are going to go up in value, even though the world seems focused on intangible. Mm -hmm. um, do you suspect in your investing career that 
tangible, invaluable outweigh intangible again? I don't know that they're exclusive. I mean, the you know, I think um, this is a great um, sort of thought experiment for me. Just how much has because um, that's what we're talking about. Microsoft, right? That's what we're talking about. The financial industry. First. What are we talking? I'm sorry. Say that again. Neil? That's what we're talking about with Microsoft, right? It's mostly intangible value. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Or, or Salesforce versus Exxon, which makes no sense to me, right? Yeah. No, you're you're right. There's this. Um, this is also. I don't know. I guess I I'm having a sense of deja vu, right? This was what uh, Enron promised. And again, <laughs> I don't want to color the conversation too much uh, by bringing up a, a, a what was a massive fraud. But the 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 driving force and the argument Enron kept making was we're going to go from an asset heavy utility and pipeline and company that manages things that rust um, to an asset light energy trader and. Everyone was very excited about that because it definitely fit in, even in 1999, 98, 98, with this drive of new software companies and the Wintel, Windows and Intel kind of partnership and just looking at the growth in technology and then the, the nascent internet. Um, it seemed to fit right in with that strategy. But of course, um, there was a great overshoot. And, um, but I think, too, very often, of course, those early ideas um, do bear fruit, um, maybe not in the same way we thought. Like I often think, you know, one of the most derided concepts was eyeballs. You know, <laughs> there was no profit for a lot of Internet companies. Oh, right. but, if they, but we got lots of eyeballs. We got lots of eyeballs, right. lots of clicks and lots of eyeballs, right? Um, Diapers.com. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. And today, of course, we're seeing that that was, of course, laughed at after the crash. But today, companies like Facebook and Google um, are really trying to keep your attention. Um, and this is, in a sense, the same thing as trying to get eyeballs, um, trying to keep you, uh, I guess, as a user, engaged more and more on their platform whether it's using Instagram and Facebook or whether it's, you know, Netflix. I still see those companies more akin to like NBC, right, um, to some degree, mm -hmm. even though they have different businesses because they're trying to capture your entertainment value as well as, you know, your work informational value information. Well, they're trying to monopolize your attention, your eyeballs, right, I think. So I, I guess my I'm just linking back that what the technologists claimed um, back in the late 90s, which then became laughed at, actually was somewhat prescient. But again, <laughs> um, you know, they were quite, quite early. And um, so I think, you know, we've really seen this asset light model again, which I think certainly comes out of Buffett's early writing, just in the sense that, you know, cash flow um, relative to the asset base um, was kind of an important but non-stated metric, not directly stated. But when you look at how he's invested, that was certainly the case. Um, and that idea has taken hold very strongly, and I don't think it can be dislodged. But I guess you have to ask, you know, what price will people pay for an asset light?
business, even with, with hefty margins, you know, and no, it's I interesting. Feel- Cause I, I think about that a lot, right? And I, I'm not, I can't, I'm not telling you I can answer it at all, but I think about mm-hmm. that a lot and I like to see hardware, software combinations. I don't want to see software only right from, from where mm-hmm. I sit. Yeah. And I don't want to see yeah. hardware only. So to me, they, they're very intertwined. Even if I spend more time thinking about the IP. How, Neil, do you think the hardware mitigates risk for you in making an investment decision versus, say, software alone? Well, software alone, I still think is copyable, right? So there's ways around it. You know, yes, you can file patents, but if you've got a unique piece of hardware married with that unique piece of software, you've got something that's much harder to, to copy. If you've invented something truly unique, not, not something iterative, um, then I, I think you're more likely to create a monopoly, even if it's a small mm-hmm. monopoly. And so, mm-hmm. you know, m- maybe it's simplistic terms I look at the world in, but that's something I can get a hold of. That's something that, that makes sense to me. Um, you're trying to multiply the effect using software and you're trying to um, show something complete novel through hardware. Like that, that's hard to say that's not going to be valuable, especially in a marketplace that, Char, you know, overcharges to begin with that needs a lot more efficiency. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, does, that, is that also, does that help you at all in the, in the question? Uh huh. That's a great answer. I think it helps me a lot. Is that also, I guess, an insight into why you're more reluctant and um, suspicious, I guess, of, say, pharmaceutical investments in healthcare? Yeah. Right? I have a harder time, yeah, getting my. We, we, you and I looked, got a chance to look at a pharma deal recently. Mm-hmm. And I didn't do as much work as um, Eric Tan did on it. But, you know, he was showing that, what, one out of 250 of those make it. I don't really mm-hmm. like stuff like that, right? right. I like, or, that I like... The, or that it can be copied or with minor revisions, a small adjustment to the compound's character um, with still the same effect. You can get around a patent even, right? It's a copyable, I guess. Right, right. There, there's Compounds are... You can invent around things. I think if you've got a strong enough hardware platform to go with something, um, even in you know in biotech, um, you've got something that you can block a lot on and make lots of bets on the future through the IP, and you don't have to have many of them pay off or even but one to have major success. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also kind of think if in order to be a pharma investor, you've got to really be a pharma investor. You can't really dabble in other things. Um, yeah. There's too many components. Like, you know, one of the things we're learning about the Moderna vaccine is, first of all, they're in litigation. Second of all, you know, it's supposed to be stored at negative 40 centigrade. Like, I don't know how in the hell mm-hmm. you do that. Um, <laughs> and, and distribute it everywhere. Buy liquid nitrogen, everybody. That's <laughs> <laughs> Something, yeah, right. Um, my dad was an industrial refrigeration engineer. I I don't remember walking to anything negative forty with him. you wouldn't remember. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> yeah, right, right. I don't remember him sure? ever mentioning it. Even is the point, right, right. right? As something he designed or worked on. So mm-hmm. that kind of sticks with me. And then you 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 may mass produce this, or you you may produce this this vaccine, but you may not be able to mass produce it because you have an issue with the materials. Um, oh my gosh, the distribution alone. We're, we're not minus. even at distribution. We're just talking about manufacturing right. and then the distribution. Right. So like, right. it, it's a pretty tough game. 
I, you know, I, I think I'll probably run across something once every few years that's just worthy of the time and the science makes sense. And, but I, in general, yeah, I, I don't, there are so many things that have to go right. Um, mm. I like to invest in something where only one thing has to go right for there to be a fair amount of money. Mm-hmm. Right. And if, if somebody's worked on something in, in med tech, for you know 10 years had their phd you know spent got a lot of grant dollars meaning other people have kind of validated it in some way i'd really rather bet on the last mile and whether they have the ability to execute right i already know the market needs it i already know that the market wants it right now can they execute to to get to their plan to either um finish engineering and get it to distribution ready or can they do early distribution that then sell the company it, mm-hmm. it seems like uh an easier bet even though most of the world is fearful of of you know life science investment because of the regulatory pathway i actually think the fda is really very good um mm-hmm. my experience mm-hmm. is they just kind of want you to be straightforward and that's probably <laughs> harder for uh financial engineers to understand Mm-hmm. <laughs> right. mm-hmm. So, uh, Elon Musk was saying in his Neuralink, um, uh, it's somewhere in, in the Neuralink conversation that he expected to get fast track approval through the FDA. And I'm like, I oh, guess, I guess if you threaten to sue them, maybe yes. Um, but I don't really know why or what for, for technology that already exists. Yeah. Well, he's used to special treatment. Let's just say. <laughs> Maybe he's just extending his, you know, past performance as an indicator of his future performance. So we'll see. Yeah. So I and maybe that that helps you a little understand uh, understand a little better why I'm reluctant with pharma. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you know, like lastly, even good things that get released released are overly toxic. So I'm you know I. I don't have the same issue with um, vax or anti-vax that some people may sound like. That may sound like, but you know, they, the the threshold for mass public consumption isn't perfect. Just like we all probably know that uh, you know it would be great if the FDA regulated McDonald's French fries too, right? Like maybe. Um, right. Thank God I'm not Oprah because I won't get sued for for talking about for, the French fries well, and McDonald's, but they. They could just say, look, this is um, egregious in terms of, you know, how we're allowing people to consume in this way. Um, let's not allow You hit a soft spot for me. I love McDonald's fries. Okay. You, me too. I, 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 I'm making the point because, <laughs> because it's, you know, the point is that you can't go after everything and there has to be some minimum threshold. And I don't love the fact, you know, I, I wouldn't invest in McDonald's. Maybe that sounds ridiculous, but I wouldn't do it. Um, partly because I know it's not great. So I, see what you're I don't saying. think of myself as an impact investor. I just think about myself as like the stuff I'm going to touch is going to help people. And mm-hmm. if I've got to worry about toxicity as one more issue, I don't know that that's always phenomenal. So you're you're just by nature an impact investor. You don't have to put the it's label. Built into on my it. thesis. I don't. I don't even think I, about this thing. I think that's mine too. In just a sense that I think business is here to help. Right. And there are businesses that don't. 
and I don't want to touch them, <laughs> you know, and I don't want to go into, you know, cigarettes and alcohol and merchants of death and all that kind of conversation, except to say, I really do, like you, Neil, believe that business is here to make our lives better and to solve problems. Well, I just think create. of business as extension of people. So, like, yeah, we're supposed to be course. good to our neighbor, right? My, my neighbor helped me carry something in. Like, shouldn't business do that? But I also want to say, you know, this, you mentioned uh, vax and anti-vax, and we we're talking about Moderna. You know, the, um, the debate has become, just in our society overall, dreadfully stupid. <laughs> um, you know, I mean, the anti-vaxxers say, of course, vaccines aren't safe, and the and the pro-vax people say, yes, they're safe. But let's face facts: nothing, including McDonald's fries, is a hundred percent safe. That's just or, or and, the U.S. dollar, know, as the other or nothing. And just as a, a mathematician or anyone who studied probabilities or just has lived <laughs> a little bit of life. You know that nothing's 100% safe, and what you're talking about with Moderna, right? Already the lawsuits have started, and of course there are going to be negative externalities and problems with the vaccine, and part of the population is going to respond in ways that are um, adverse to what they're trying to accomplish, and people are going to have negative reactions. And Anyway, all that to say, um, you know, uh, nothing is 100% safe. And we just have to find a way, I think generally this is an overall um, sort of global note, uh, find a way there where we can meet somewhere in the middle and have a decent conversation um, free of all the emotional attachments and um, bombastic statements that uh, seem to characterize our, our speech today. Everything's a soundbite and you're if you're um, questioning vaccines, you're an anti-vaxxer and, you know, just sometimes uh, vaccines are effective. I'm very much in favor of them. I think from a public health standpoint, you have to be. But I do think that um, rushing these things um, because of some economic need. Or because or, you're Russia. Or political demand or just because you're Russian, right? <laughs> <laughs> very, very dangerous. R yeah. Rushing Russia so. vaccines, not my favorite. <laughs> Well, I think that one's dead in the water after this latest uh, poisoning. But you've got to see, like, the, the global stage, you know, when Angela Merkel says we expect Russia to complete a full investigation. I don't think they have to. I think they know what happened. And that Germany also has to be cautious because, uh, you know, Russia has the, the gas pipeline that they can easily turn that spigot off. Um, just in time for winter, if Germany were to be too forceful in their demands. Uh, it's a weird global world, Neil. <laughs> a lot of, uh, you know, different agendas being all put forth at once. So I, I will end the episode by, by this with our own agenda. If you like this episode or any of the other episodes, please do leave us a five-star rating. And we really appreciate you listening and supporting us and um, just sharing your thoughts as we get a chance to chat with you. Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for your time today and for joining us and uh, sharing a little bit of your afternoon, morning, or evening, or whenever you're listening uh, with Neil Modi and Chris. All opinions expressed by Neil Modi and Chris Heidel and podcast guests reflect solely their own opinions and do not reflect the investments of Zoa Capital or Heidel, Beal, and Associates. 
This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for investment decisions.